you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to open with me to the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 11. And so head that way if you would. Luke chapter 11 and verse 14 is where we will begin. And today we're going to be back in our study that we temporarily paused out of Luke's Gospel. And uh, it's been a long time since we looked at this. As I uh, got to looking at this myself, I was like, you know, I preached it and I can't remember where, where exactly we were. And so um, I guess that's what time will do to a person. So just to kind of get you in, uh, in the right mindset, just like I had to get myself, just remember Jesus in his uh, kind of the, the timeline of his life. He's on his final big trip to Jerusalem where he will eventually suffer and die at the hands of sinful men and uh, give his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Earlier in chapter 11, you remember Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, Lord teaches us to pray. And so the disciples came and, and they were impressed by Jesus' prayer life. They wanted him to teach them how to pray. I mean, John the Baptist, he taught his disciples how to pray. Would you do the same for us? And so Jesus gave them what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And, um, and then after we did that, we dealt with some issues dealing with prayer. I don't know if you remember that. We had put, uh, we, we did kind of a, a little sermon, uh, not really a series, but we, we just talked about questions and answers about prayer. And so we did all that, and then the holidays hit, and, um, and so we kind of put all that on pause. Today, what we're going to get back into it, and we're going to look at what you might call the, uh, the height of rejection as it pertains to Jesus and his ministry. And from this point on, I mean, the, at, at this point, the Pharisees, they just out and out blaspheme and attribute the work of God to the work of Satan. Um, and, and from here on out, Jesus, the, the tone of his, of his teaching changes just a little bit. So if you found Luke chapter 11 and verse 14, if you're able, I'd like you to stand with me in honor of God's word. And we'll read down to verse uh, 26. It says, and he was speaking of Jesus, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the, de- when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself uh, falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the, state of the, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Thank you. may be seated. <clears throat> Now, um, there, are, there are three main things I want you to see in our text today. The first is that Jesus performed an act of God. He performed an act of God. Look back at verse uh, 14, if you would. 
And, and, and here in verse 14, we see a man that's, that's really in a pitiful condition. Luke records that this man is demon-possessed, and because of this demon possession and this demonic activity in his life, this man was mute. That means he can't speak. Um, Matthew chapter 12 also records this incident, and he records that, but he also records that because of the, the demon, it also made the man blind. So here's a man who is, who is blind, he, he can't see, he can't speak, and he is demon-possessed. I mean, he is in a bad state of affairs. And, and no doubt, everybody and his brother had tried to help this man. I mean, I'm sure he probably went, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I'm sure he probably went to the physicians. They probably gave him, um, uh, prescribed him some sort of medication or treatment as best they could. I'm sure they probably talked to religious leaders, maybe had the, the rabbis come over and, and do some sort of, of uh, procedure, uh, incantations or something. Um, I'm sure that there were probably some, some men in the cafe, whenever they saw this man come in, they probably said, well, I'll tell you what needs to happen. They just need to, you know, it just needs to be a, a whatever it is. And you know how it is whenever uh, folks get together and they solve the world's troubles. Well, that's probably what had happened in the community. But, but no matter what people had tried to do, this man had not been freed from his demonic possession. He was in a bad state of affairs. It was all unsuccessful up to the time of Jesus. Now, when Jesus comes along, he performs what's clearly an act of God. And you'll notice it was really a threefold miracle. Because, number one, he freed the man of demonic possession. That's the first miracle. Second, in casting out this demon, the man regained his sight. That's what Matthew 12 records. And what, Matthew, or what Luke 11 records is he also got the ability to speak again. So this is clearly an act of God. Nobody had been able to do anything for this man until this point. Jesus did what only God can do. And it made an impression on those around him. If you look at verse 14... The, the crowds were astonished. They'd never seen anything quite like this before. It was different from the Jewish exorcisms they were used to seeing. But not everybody responded as they should. And here's the second thing I want you to see, and that is accusations of wicked men. Accusations of wicked men. So this crowd's amazed. People are nodding approvingly. I'm sure they were probably patting each other on the back. They were maybe some, some amens and hallelujahs were going on. Um, probably some people were rushing up to this man to make sure he really could see that this isn't some sort of a, a, a trick or, or something like that. I mean, people were impressed. They were amazed at what Jesus had done. They were praising God. But you'll notice verse 15, not everybody responded the way they should. And I, I don't remember which of my uh, resources had termed it this way. Obviously, there are two groups here, but they, uh, there's some alliteration here. There are two groups that, were, uh, th that are mentioned here. First, there are the slanderers, and then there are the skeptics. So the slanderers falsely accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan, and the skeptics were asking from, uh, for a sign from heaven. Now, before we actually get into the, uh, the accusation that they made, the slander that they made against Jesus about being in league with the devil... I just want to pause and I want to highlight something because it's, it, after you see it in the text, it just kind of leaps off the page. And that is that neutrality is a myth. Neutrality in regards to Jesus is a myth. Now, many people in the American church today, and I'm talking about good, God-fearing, evangelical, uh, committed to the, the, the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture. I mean, people that really love the Lord. They are solid. They... they, they, they they want to serve the Lord. Many of us have the idea that people are morally neutral. 
And so when, that, when, and when they bring this idea to things like evangelism, it causes them all sorts of troubles. Here's how that looks. Somebody will go into a conversation with the idea that the person to whom they're speaking is morally neutral in regards to Jesus. And so they'll have this conversation. It'll end up, they'll be talking about spiritual things. And this person is, Lord, help me say the right things. Help me remember all the things I've studied. Help me remember these facts or, or details or, or, or dates or whatever it is. And they believe if I just give a good enough presentation, if I have all my ducks in a row, if I am winsome in my delivery, if I, am, if, if, if I don't stumble over my words too much, when I, if I just present it in a good enough way, this person to whom I'm speaking will be, they're morally neutral. I give them a good case. They'll hear it, they'll see it, and they'll fall to their knees right there on the spot and say, what must I do to be saved? And pray that God would save them. Hallelujah. Amen. That's what they think. That's what we think, isn't it? We think that that's what's going to happen. We, we can give them an airtight. Have you ever had this, this conversation? You'll be speaking with somebody. It'll go to spiritual things. And you give a textbook, I mean, you knock the answer out of the park. I mean, it is bottom of the ninth World Series Grand Slam answer. I mean, it's good. You should have written a book. I mean, it's good. And you give it to them, and they just dismiss it. They, 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 they're uninterested in hearing what you have to say. They, they're like, well, yeah, I'll... That's nice, but, and, and they're just dismissive of, of any facts that you give them. It's not opinions of, uh, of different things. I mean, it's just factual information. You can have all the dates memorized you want, and, 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 and you can do a, a great job. But people are not morally neutral. You can give the best presentation there is. People are not morally neutral. We see it in the life of Jesus. Can I tell you, there is, you're not going to get a better presentation of truth than Jesus. And here are these people seeing Jesus in the flesh. How much would we give to be in their shoes, to be in their sandals? And here's Jesus in the flesh. He's performing the miracles. He's, he's doing the teachings. And we look at that, and these people see all this, and they don't respond like you would expect. They're not morally neutral. They are predisposed to be against God. We, we, people are in rebellion against God. People have skin in the game because if there's a God who will judge the living and the dead, they have skin in the game in that. It is to their advantage if God doesn't even exist. And so they will do anything mentally. They, they will do mental gymnastics and twist ideas and facts to try and suit them to relieve their guilty conscience. And I want you to notice, look, look at the lack of uh, neutrality in here in this first we see it in their example again Jesus Jesus gave the best presentation there is because he's God incarnate he did an undeniable three threefold miracle and what is what is their response sir what must I do to be saved no their response is you did that because of the devil they literally accused him of being possessed by Satan Jesus that's not morally neutral. Again, they are predisposed to reject God as part of our, our, our fallen human nature. And second, we see it in Jesus' words themselves in verse 25. 
I'm sorry, verse 23. It says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, the terminology that Jesus used is different from what I'm using when I'm talking about neutrality, but the idea is the same. He doesn't say, there are three camps. He says, you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. You're either for Jesus or against him. And, and sometimes people will come to, come to church, they'll listen to a message online, or they'll, they'll, they'll listen to a, a, a sermon that's preached on the radio or on TV, and they'll, they'll, they'll feel self-satisfied. They'll think, well, you know, I, I'm not a Christian, but my indecision for or against Christ makes me neutral. I'm not, I'm not against God, I'm just not necessarily for God. No, your non-decision doesn't put you in the middle of the road. You're either for Jesus or you're against Him. There is no neutral camp. If you're not for Him, you're against Him. That's not Jeff's words, that's Jesus' words, verse 23. Now, look at the actual accusation that's made in verse 15. He does this miracle, and they accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, unless you, maybe you know this, without looking at your study notes in your Bible, you probably, though, don't know what Beelzebul means, or why they would call him Beelzebul, or why he would be associated with the devil. Even if you don't know that offhand, you can tell just by looking at their words, looking in at verse 15. Who is the ruler? Who is the head? Who is the leader of the demons? Well, the answer to that is the devil. So even if you don't know the background of Beelzebul and, and all that stuff, you know they're, telling, they're saying about Jesus, the Son of God, he's doing it by the power, by the authority of the devil. I mean, that's straight up blasphemy. So why did they use the name Beelzebul? Why didn't they just say, he's doing it by the power of Satan? Why didn't they do that? Well, back in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2, there's a king that's mentioned. It's during the, the prophecy, the, the, the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And there's a king there by the name of Ahaziah. And Ahaziah has an incident, an accident. And here's what it says in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he, he, he had a fall, and he got hurt. So he sent messengers and said of them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. So the king gets hurt, and rather than ask God about what's coming up, through the prophet Elijah, instead... He chooses to send messengers to inquire of one of the false gods of the Philistines. Remember the Philistines, David and Goliath, and, and, uh, and, and the Philistines were kind of a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. So he said, send messengers and inquire about whether or not I'm going to make it. Now, we don't know hardly anything about this false god from antiquity. He's not mentioned very much in, in, uh, in, in ancient literature. And so we don't know all that was associated with him. But one suggestion here is that his name, Baal means Lord, that Baal Zebub meant Lord of the Princes. And that through time, the Jews had turned that into a pun that meant Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, Beelzebul. 
that is one suggestion of how this name came to be associated with the devil. Other suggestions are that since the ancient peoples oftentimes would associate a god with a particular thing that they supposedly ruled over, that uh, because Beelzebul, the, the demons or the, the Pharisees were associating Jesus with, means Lord of the Flies. I should probably back up and tell you that. Means Lord of the Flies. So how did it get to be? Where's all this come from? So it could be that they they turned it into a pun that means Lord of the Flies. Also, the ancient peoples, you think about Egypt, they had a a god for everything. A god of the Nile, a god of the sky, all these different things. And so ancient cultures would often associate a god with a certain thing that they were supposed to control. And let me tell you, flies are bothersome, right? They're a nuisance. And so other cultures also had gods of mice and gods of flies and all these things. So it's possible that these Philistines um, had a god of the uh, Lord of the Flies. Baalzebub. So through time, idol worship was associated with demon worship. It's all the way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's spelled out very plainly. And so through time, this title of Beelzebul, Beelzebub, became attached to this ruler of the demons, which is the devil. And just like we have different names for the devil, we have the devil, Satan, uh, the great serpent, all, all these different titles. The Jews at the time also had other titles for him, such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, he is called Belial. It's all talking about the archenemy of God, the devil, Satan. So what they're saying, they, they don't say Jesus didn't cast out a demon. They didn't say Jesus performed a miracle. They said he did that, but, but he did it through the power of the devil, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, Satan. Others were testing him, demanding a sign from heaven. Now, it could be this is in the same vein as the other guys, because the common Jewish thought at the time, popular culture, said the devil can do miracles on earth, but only God can do miracles, signs from heaven. And so when they say, yeah, you're doing this, but we need to see a sign from heaven, it could be that they're, they're in that same camp. Anyway, All that to say this, they are accusing Jesus of being in league with the devil. That is the ultimate blasphemy. And finally, I want you to see an answer from the Savior. An answer, so we have an act of God, we have accusations of wicked men, and finally I want you to see an answer from the Savior. Now Jesus gives them an answer, and he he doesn't just hit them with one answer. He hits them with one answer, but in, in fighting, they call it punches and bunches. I mean, it's a combination. You have a left and a right and an uppercut, and, and you do all these punches and you hit them. It, it's, it's very quick. And, and just, the, 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 just the, the, the repetitious, all these blows coming in from different angles is more effective. And Jesus does that verbally. He doesn't just hit them with a, a, a right hook. I mean, he hits them with a, a, a left jab and a right hook and an uppercut. I mean, he, he lays them out verbally. First, he appeals to reason. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. I believe Abraham Lincoln said something to to that effect. That wasn't original to him. Jesus said it first. Jesus points out that a kingdom that fights against itself is not going to last long. I mean, we we see it in our own country, don't we? Everybody's fighting against everybody else except the people they should be focused on and fighting against. 
If, if, there, if there's a kingdom and a bunch of people in that kingdom are fighting against a bunch of people in that kingdom, it's going to self-destruct. It, it, it's not going to grow. It's not going to be secure. And therefore, Jesus says, if what you're saying is true, if I'm really fighting satanic forces through the power of Satan, Satan is divided against himself. His kingdom will not stand. It's going to implode. It's going to fall. In other words, it doesn't make sense because kings... Don't try to sabotage their own kingdom. They want it to grow. They want it to be secure and more powerful. And so first he hits them with reason. Then he answers them by challenging them directly, verses 19 and 20. And I hate to even use this terminology, but it's, you'll understand what I mean. But I really had to use it about Jesus because he, he plays, for lack of a better term, devil's advocate. Which is especially ironic given the conversation that he's having with them. It's as if he said, okay... For the sake of argument, let's just say you're right. And I'm kind of expanding this out. Let's say I am casting out demons by Beelzebul. That's, okay, here, here, here's the left-hand jab. And here comes the right cross. He says, let's just say that I'm doing that. Look, look what he says in verses 19 and, and 20. Verse 19, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? In other words, he, and when he says your sons, he's not talking necessarily about their progeny, their offspring. Sons of is a biblical idiom that means some of their group or some of their followers. So, for instance, in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 3, it talks about the sons of the prophets. Not necessarily the, the offspring of the prophets. It's talking about the group of the prophets or, or their followers, their disciples. And so what Jesus is doing is he says, okay... If you want to say that I'm doing this by the power of Satan, let's use some fair weights and measures. If, I'm, if, if the devil is involved in this exorcism, and some of you are doing this very same thing, that means you're doing it through the power of the devil too. Are you sure you want to go there? Jesus, like I said, he's, he's getting after him. And, and then he hits him with a contrast most of us miss. The alternative to him casting out demons by the power of the devil, obviously, is that he's casting them out by the power of God. Look at verse 20. And he uses a phrase that's, that's actually quite significant. He uses the phrase, the finger of God. And when you read that, you might have went, that's weird. Why do you say the hand of God? This phrase, finger of God, it does not occur very often in the Bible. I think four times total. And the one that he appears to be referring to is actually out of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 19. And so what's happening in Exodus chapter 8, remember uh, God called Moses, let my people go. Moses went in before Pharaoh over and over again. Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. And there were plagues that were issued. And uh, one of them was the plague of gnats. And so what would happen is Moses would go in, He would these plagues would happen, and the Egyptian... Uh, magicians would come and they would try and replicate the the miracle that would that had happened. Notice, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but notice they never undid what God was doing. They just tried to copy it. And so, so anyway, here's what it says in uh, Exodus chapter eight. I'll back up to verse eighteen. The gnat, the plague of gnats was there. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats. That's not very helpful to have more of them. But they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. 
But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. In other words, what they're saying is, this miraculous thing is an act that only God can do, and he has not given this ability to us who are, who are rejecting him. And what Jesus is saying, it appears when he makes this reference, is there are two choices. One, I'm doing this by the power of Satan, which we've seen is not it. The other choice is I'm doing it by the finger of God. In other words, this is a miraculous thing that only God can do that he's not given you the ability to because you're rejecting God. Third, he answers them with a parable or a story. And so he tells this story about a strong man who has possessions and he gets attacked. Now, when, if I were to ask you on the spot, who is the strong man in the story that gets attacked? Many of us don't say, many of us say, well, that's Jesus. No. Because many times we're like the kid in Sunday school. His Sunday school teacher showed him a picture of a squirrel. He said, class, what is this? And this little boy raised his hand and said, well, I know the right answer is Jesus, but it looks like a squirrel to me. And sometimes we, we, we get these questions in our immediate response without thinking to say, Jesus, he's, the, he's a strong man. He was attacked. But if you look, that's not, what, that's not what's going on. Because the person, the strong man, is fully armed. He's guarding the stuff. The stuff is undisturbed. And given the context, that's the devil and the demons. They're possessing people. They're oppressing people. They're doing all this all this mischief in the world, and things are humming along smoothly. But then, verse 22, someone stronger than them, Jesus, attacks and overpowers them, and he disarms them and distributes his plunder. Guess who that is? That's people like the man that he just freed in this exorcism. And they're, they're freed, they are released, they're delivered. They, he, he distributes the plunder. In other words, Jesus is coming on a rescue mission. He's kicking in the doors of the devil's house and he's freeing people. He is delivering them. He is, he is throwing open the gates. He's getting them out of the devil's grip. In other words, he is showing these people the true character of what he's doing. He says, you're saying I'm doing this by the power of Satan. I'm, the, I'm destroying the works of the devil. And fourth, here's the last, last part of his argument. He accuses them of making the lives of these people worse. And that's in verses 24 to 26. And I'm just going to say some statements of Jesus are easy. Some statements of Jesus are not. And this is one of those that you look at and it talks about uh, an unclean spirit that goes out and, and finds no place to, to reside and so then comes back and the, the, place, the, the person in whom he had taken up residence before, have been possessing. Um, it's, like a, it's like a house that's all swept and clean. He brings, all, brings along some other uh, demons. And, and we look at that, and it's hard to know exactly how he's connecting this. I believe, and the way I'm, gonna, the way I'm taking it here, is that this connects to what he's just gotten through saying, and that it's the end of his argument against these people. It's a continuation of his answer. And it's like he's, he's saying these these people that are arguing with Jesus and are making these false accusations are actually making the people's lives worse. Now what I mean is, there were Jewish exorcists at the time. Now we, we read about them in scripture. Um, ancient historians like Josephus, they mentioned them. And they evidently, they would travel around and evidently had at least occasional success, but it evidently wasn't lasting success. 
And so, so taking what Jesus says and applying it to what's been going on, it, it seems like this spirit that would go out of a man, maybe would just leave for whatever reason, or it could be through the work of these exorcists. And it's like they would go out, and it's kind of like if you want to envision, if you were a landlord and you had a really bad tenant, there's always destroying stuff. I mean, they're knocking holes in the walls. They're, I mean, they're, they're just trashing the place up, and finally they leave, and you're so thankful. But after a while, that tenant looks around and says, I think we better go back home where I was. And in the meantime, that, that tenant's gone. You decide to clean up, paint the walls. You put the popcorn and stuff back on the ceiling, if they do that these days. I mean, you, you replace the fixtures that have been broken. You patch the walls. You put in new carpet that's been stained. I mean, you, you, you fix it up. And then that tenant comes back and says, wow, this looks really nice. I'm going to have some of my friends come over with me. That's, that's a picture of what's going on. This, this person, the, the demon has left this person, but notice the house is swept, but it's not been washed. It's not holy. It's not occupied by someone else. No one had come in and taken up residence. And so along, the, the spirit would come, go, go out for whatever reason, would come back. Nobody's indwelling the house. There's been reformation, but there's no regeneration. There's not been salvation. And the worst, the, the, the end condition of that person is worse than the beginning. And that's the way it is when we try to reform ourselves overall, isn't it? Because it's not enough to get rid of the bad, we need to fill that void with good. And in the case that Jesus is talking about, yes, the, the bad, the, the, the demons and all that, it's good for them to leave for a time, but you have to have somebody come in who's going to resist them when they try to come back home. That heart needs to be occupied by another. Well, what we need is we need somebody new, somebody that's greater that's going to be in us than he that's in the world. And Jesus says, you guys are, are accusing me of casting out uh, demons by the power of the devil. You know what? You guys are, yeah, the, the, the demons will go out, but you're not helping people know the only thing that can deliver them long term. And that's faith in Christ. When he comes up and takes residence, he is the strongest man. He's not going to be overcome. And listen, reformation without regeneration is worthless. You must be born again. Because all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And that's why I plead week in and week out. I know many, if not all of you, have put your faith in Christ. But I don't know the condition of anyone's heart. I don't know the condition of the heart of people that will be watching this. Or will listen to this at a later time. And that's why I plead week in and week out to be born again. To put your faith in Christ. Because that's the only way the person can be saved. That's the only way a person can be made right with God. And if you've never done that, I, I call on you this very hour, even now where you are, to trust Christ for salvation. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes.
and again, I, this is one of those texts that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to apply in some ways, isn't it? Because um, I mean, we don't do exorcisms and things like that. But just in the quiet of this time with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just, I, I want to ask you first, if you are trying to reform yourself to make yourself good enough for God without being born again. Maybe you're maybe you've done that, but you've been buying into this idea of, of moral neutrality that that if, if you just do a good enough job people will necessarily be saved. Listen, Jesus spoke to thousands of people, and many of them rejected him. It wasn't because of a lack of, of rhetorical skill on his part. It's because nobody's neutral when it comes to Jesus. We are predisposed against him. We are in rebellion against God. And the only way that that can be overcome is through a changed heart, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you have somebody in your life friend, co-worker, family member. You need to pray for that person. They don't know Christ. Yes, pray that you would have confidence, have wisdom to present the truth, but pray ultimately that God would work in their hearts because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Him. Our Heavenly Father, as we, um, as we consider your word, we know that people do not come to you as a blank slate, but we come predisposed to turn from you, to run from you, to be in rebellion against you. And that's the state that each of us is in apart from Christ. And Lord, for those people that we have in our lives, I pray that you would soften their hearts. Let them be able to see the truth of the gospel. And that you grant them faith and repentance. God, help us as we uh, consider those times whenever we've um, had those conversations and we've walked away dejected and upset because we feel like we have failed because they didn't get saved. Help us remember that we don't, we don't save anybody. We're not the Holy Spirit. Help us to rely on you more. And God, may for that person who's tried to get to heaven by um, clean up the outside of the clean the outside of the cup, they've tried reformation without regeneration, without being born again. God, for that person maybe who's done that their whole lives, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today so they would become your child for real. And again, we lift up all of our cares and concerns and cast them upon you for you care for us. And we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.